Welcome to Every Moment His. This season, we will be listening to Head Heart's Habits, written and read by Pastor John Rasmussen. Head Heart Habits, Chapter 3. Chapter 3, Living in Faith, the Apostles' Creed. Most people believe in God, but not everyone agrees on who God is. For example, a dollar bill reads, In God We Trust, and Americans often sing, God Bless America. But do we all agree on the identity of who this God is? More and more, God has become whatever we want him or her or it to be. We may even speak about God in impersonal terms, such as the universe or a higher power. For Christians, who God is and what God does are inseparable. Our understanding of God arises from the biblical story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. In these four acts, we see his attributes in action. In fact, as we look closer at who God is through what God has and continues to do, we'll see that scripture's understanding of God is much different than the many versions of him we cast in the image of ourselves or our culture. Rather than recite the whole Bible when asked what they believe about God, Christians have developed short summaries of our faith called creeds. The most basic universal creed that goes back to the early church is the Apostles' Creed. In three parts, it outlines the scriptural teaching that God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. According to these three persons, it also narrates three acts that form the center of the biblical story of creation, redemption, and restoration. And it goes like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. In this chapter, we'll explore each of the three parts of the creed. In doing so, we'll see how the God of the Bible is different from other versions of God, as well as how his unique character invites our hearts to trust him for all of our needs in this life and the life to come. Creation, God the Father Almighty. What's the purpose of your life? Why do you exist? Do you have a confident answer to these questions? Or are you uncertain? Beyond the purpose of your life, have you ever wondered why anything even exists at all? What's the purpose of the universe? Why does the sun come up every day? Multiple answers exist for these questions. Some people believe the universe is an accident and that human beings have no ultimate purpose. If we have a purpose in life, it's the one that we've chosen for ourselves. In this view, God, the soul, and ultimate purpose are all imaginary. 
Interestingly, the cultures surrounding Israel at the time the book of Genesis was written share some similar beliefs. Unlike some modern people, these cultures believed in supernatural forces. However, despite this difference, they are similar in that both tell origin stories that are chaotic and lacking in purpose. The creation stories of the ancient Babylonians, Egyptians, and Canaanites narrate epic tales of gods and demigods in a struggle of primordial sex and violence. They believed that out of the blood and guts of this struggle, the world came into existence. Far from being created in the image of God, human beings were more of an afterthought, at best second-class servants of the gods. The creation account of Genesis tells a much different story. Rather than many gods in competition with one another, only one unrivaled, sovereign, self-sufficient God exists. The universe did not arise on accident. God spoke it into existence for his own purposes. Human beings are not incidental. God created Adam and Eve intentionally. They bear his image, possess innate dignity, and have the unique responsibility of managing God's creation. In other words, in the biblical story, being human is a good thing. While most people don't believe in epic tales of gods and goddesses anymore, a growing number do believe that this universe arose by pure chance, often based on a misunderstanding of the purpose and limits of science, some assert that we can explain our existence apart from God. This approach has numerous problems. For one, science deals with observable, repeatable things, and so ultimate questions related to our existence cannot be solved by science. While science is an excellent tool for telling us how things work, it cannot tell us why we exist, our ultimate purpose, or even delve into the question of God's existence or nature. Since God is not part of this physical world, he is beyond the reach of our instruments of exploration. Furthermore, while science has solved many riddles of the natural world, it runs up against some thorny issues that escape solving. For example, science has yet to offer convincing explanations for how something arises from nothing, how inanimate matter gave rise to life, and the origin and nature of consciousness. Given that we cannot observe such events, it's doubtful whether science can ever resolve such questions. Some modern people take a mystical approach to creation. Rather than believe in a personal God who is separate from his creation, they believe that God and the universe are the same. It's become more popular to speak of the universe instead of God, or talk about God being in nature or even present in other people. From a biblical perspective, this understanding of God ends up making no sense of the word God or the word universe. The word God only carries meaning if God is distinct from the universe he created. And likewise, the word universe only makes sense if it exists separate from God. However, as author C.S. Lewis once noted, the idea of God being a force or an energy is appealing to many people. Such a God gives the comfort of a higher power without the discomfort of commandments and expectations. 
Overall, the biblical understanding of God is that he created this universe for a purpose, his glory and our enjoyment. He has created you and me for a purpose, to be loved by him and to love him and others in return. It's helpful to break God's purpose for human beings into three aspects. First, God created you for his presence. The opening chapters of Genesis tell us that God placed Adam and Eve into a garden. The language Genesis uses for this garden carries the idea of a temple, a place of worship and delight in God's presence. God created us to live in close proximity to him. God created us to revel and rejoice in the goodness of his presence. Second, God created you for his fellowship. God does not need anything or anyone beyond himself. Apart from his creation, he is perfectly complete as the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, he invites human beings into a relationship with himself. He is not a distant deity. Rather, God spoke to Adam and Eve, blessing them, instructing them, and entrusting them with the care of his creation. Out of the eternal fellowship of his love, he pours love into the hearts of human beings that they might live in love toward one another as well. And third, God created you to rule in power. To be created in the image of God carries the responsibility of managing his creation. He is the owner of all things. We are the stewards of his gifts. God put Adam into the garden to work it and keep it, Genesis 2.15. He also entrusted Adam and Eve with a noble project to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth, Genesis 1.28. We are to use the power, wisdom, and reason given to us by our Creator to build this world into a beautiful reflection of His glory. As we noted in previous chapters, human beings have fallen short of this high calling. We have fled God's presence, broken our relationship with Him, and sought to rule this world on our own terms. But God has not abandoned us. In love, God has entered into the sad story of human rebellion and brokenness to redeem the plot. In the person and the work of Jesus Christ, God brings about our redemption. Redemption, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Most people like Jesus, and almost no one, credible historians and scholars included, would ever claim that Jesus never existed. In fact, it's arguable that no single person has shaped history more than Jesus Christ. However, not everyone agrees on who Jesus is and the meaning of his life. Some would claim Jesus as a wise teacher, whose example we should follow. Others would interpret him as a political figure. And still others view him as just one of many enlightened spiritual guides who can help us achieve inner peace or enlightenment. In other words, we interpret Jesus through the lens of our pre-existing beliefs or perceived needs. 
Since Christians locate our root problem in the self-centeredness of sin, we confess that the root solution to our problem isn't improvement. We need a solution from outside of ourselves, one that gives us a new foundation in place of the compromised one we've been building on. To use the language of addiction, we need an intervention. We need redemption. So Christians view Jesus through the lens of our problem, sin, and the solution he provides, redemption. Since the core of Christianity is Jesus Christ, and since all its teachings are ultimately about him, it's impossible to do justice to his life and teachings in this little book, let alone this brief chapter. I encourage you to read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to make up for what this book lacks in depth and detail. Besides, the goal of this book is to press you deeper into the Bible and into the Gospels. Nevertheless, when Christians offer a brief overview of the redemption God provides in Jesus Christ, they typically speak about his person, who he is, and his work, what he has done. The person of Jesus Christ. The name Jesus was a fairly common Jewish name in the first century world. It means the Lord saves, and and it corresponds to the Old Testament name and book of the Bible, Joshua. The name Christ is not so much a name as a title. Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah, which in the Old Testament referred to the mighty king from the line of David who would rule the world justly and bring about peace. While the name of Jesus and the title of Christ can all be understood on human terms, the Bible also speaks about Jesus in divine terms as well. He is called God with us, Emmanuel is the corresponding Hebrew word from Matthew 1.23. He's also called the Word made flesh. See John 1.14 and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.24. So who is Jesus? A man or God? The scriptural answer to this question is yes. He is fully God and fully man in the unity of one person. Summarizing the church's teaching, the theologian Martin Luther states that Jesus Christ is true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary. The work of Jesus Christ. Christians summarize the work of Jesus Christ for us with the word redemption. This word carries the idea of buying something back that was lost. As Martin Luther goes on to summarize in his small catechism, he, Jesus, redeemed me, a lost and condemned person. As we noted before, we often approach Jesus from the lens of our perceived problems and needs. If we need some moral encouragement, then Jesus is our teacher. If we need a better life, Jesus is our life coach. And if we're seeking enlightenment, then Jesus is our guru. Since Christians recognize that we are lost and condemned people, we believe that Jesus came to redeem us from our greatest problem of all, our sins and the consequences that they carry both now and forever. We experience the consequences of our rebellion against God in a variety of ways, and for each of these ways, Jesus has worked redemption for us. 
into our exile and alienation, Jesus brings the presence of God. Into our guilt and shame, Jesus brings the pardon of God. And into our powerlessness over sin and death, Jesus brings the power of God. Presence. In the beginning, God invited humanity to enjoy fellowship with him in a garden. Shortly after their rebellion, God exiled them from fellowship with him in the garden into a world of thorns and thistles. As a result, all human beings experience alienation from God, others, and even themselves. And yet, God always remained with humanity, seeking them out and inviting them into his presence. In the Old Testament, God dwelt among his people in the tabernacle, a large movable tent, and the temple. In the New Testament, the Gospel of John tells us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. In Jesus, God has come into our exile and alienation. Because of Emmanuel, God with us, we are no longer alone. Often called the incarnation, literally putting on flesh, the coming of Jesus Christ means that God has irrevocably joined himself to humanity, thus giving us eternal worth and affirmation. Pardon. Human beings were created for a relationship with God and one another. However, sin fractured this relationship. Human beings all suffer from a sense of guilt and shame. Before God, we are guilty. This guilt is more than just a feeling. It carries the weight of eternal sentence, a declaration of guilty that leads to our rightful exclusion from God's presence. Nevertheless, in the depths of our guilt, even when we loved our sin more than we loved the God who created us, God loved us and gave his son for us. The death of Jesus Christ upon a cross is the event by which God pours out his just anger and hatred for sin upon an innocent sin-bearer, his own beloved son. In the cross, God shows both his intolerance for sin and his deep love for sinners. Through the death of Jesus, God accomplished our pardon, completely wiping away the stain of sin that separated us from his presence. Power. God created us to rule over his creation, yet sadly his sin has made us powerless and therefore unequal to this task. In seeking to rule on our own terms, we are now ruled by sin and eventually death. Our best efforts often lead to more problems, and even our progress is wrecked by self-interest. God's response to our powerlessness was to raise his son from the dead in power. Into what seemed powerless, the death of Jesus Christ at the hands of his own people and the Roman authorities, God worked his mighty power. On the third day, the tomb was empty. Jesus appeared alive to over 500 of his followers during a period of 40 days. He ascended into heaven, and though hidden from our eyes for the time being, he rules over all things. He will return in power to set things right and make all things new. This final show of power will undo the power of sin, death, and evil in this world. And even now, 
this same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in the lives of his followers, giving power over sin and hope in the midst of death. But is it true? A question beyond the scope of this book, but nevertheless important, is the question of whether the events of Jesus' life, especially his resurrection from the dead, are credible or mythical. We invite readers to delve deeper into this question. Overall, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is strong, and the explanations against it are far from convincing. Historian Michael Lacona summarizes this. The only legitimate reasons for rejecting the resurrection hypothesis are philosophical and theological in nature. In other words, the only reason a historian would reject the resurrection as fact is because of a pre-existing belief that this kind of event is simply impossible. In the New Testament, we see that skepticism isn't just a modern problem. No one expected the resurrection to happen. Even the disciples needed convincing afterwards, but almost all of them gave up their lives rather than deny it happened. It doesn't make much sense that they invented a story that would cost them their lives. The Apostle Paul, for example, acknowledged that if the resurrection did not happen, Christians are the greatest fools of all. And so we have to ask ourselves, why give up so much for a lie? Restoration, the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is often overlooked or ignored. Many Christians struggle to articulate who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. Some have even called him the forgotten person of the Trinity. But without the Holy Spirit, there would be no Christians and no church, for he is the creator of both. Through the Holy Spirit, God connects us to the redemption Jesus accomplished for us, thus restoring us back to the good purposes for which God created us. The Old Testament describes the Holy Spirit as the powerful wind or breath of God. Through his Spirit, God created, gifted people with power and wisdom to carry out difficult tasks and inspired the prophets to speak concerning his purposes. While God's Spirit is certainly powerful and energetic, he is not just a power or energy. Rather, the Holy Spirit is the personal, life-giving presence of God. In the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit at work in the healing and teaching ministry of Jesus. All of Jesus' work is done in the power of the Holy Spirit. His conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary took place by the Holy Spirit, as well as his resurrection from the dead. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he promised that the Holy Spirit would come to live within his followers. On the day of Pentecost, 50 days after his resurrection and 10 days after his ascension, the Holy Spirit came in mighty power upon Jesus' disciples. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, God connects Christians to the presence, pardon, and power of Jesus Christ. Through this indwelling, God is restoring us to the image of his Son. Christians often speak of this restoring work on two levels and two timelines, the individual and the corporate within the timeline of both now and not yet. 
right now the Spirit has made each Christian into a new creation, individual, within a new community, corporate. And yet Christians long for the day when the Holy Spirit will complete his new creation and gather his community in celebration of God's saving love once and for all. A new creation. Scripture tells us that apart from the saving work of Jesus, we are dead in our sins and trespasses, enemies of God, aliens and strangers, without God and without hope. See Ephesians 2.1, verses 3 and 12. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit reverses all of these sad realities. By giving us the gift of trust in Jesus' saving death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit gives us a new status. By God's kindness and grace alone, we become new creations, adopted sons and daughters, citizens of heaven, and forgiven sinners. Our new status places us into a struggle between old and new ways of thinking, speaking, and acting. Often called sanctification, the Holy Spirit leads us into the process of being conformed to the reality of who God declared us to be. He brings us to Jesus, and then he gradually makes us like Jesus. This process is often messy and painful. However, the Spirit also gives us the assurance that his work will come to completion in spite of our many weaknesses. On the last day, he will raise us from the dead, giving us glorified bodies like the body of our Savior, bodies now immune to the power of sin and death. A new community. The Spirit's work of new creation does not take place in isolation. The Christian life is not a do-it-yourself project. Rather, the Holy Spirit gathers us together into a new community of people who are recreated for God's purposes, called the church. We often use the word church to refer to either a building or an event. However, the New Testament uses this word to refer to the new community the Holy Spirit has created through faith in Jesus Christ. These are the people the Spirit binds together in worship, growth, and service an eternal family from every nation, tribe, and language who will revel together in the goodness of their Father and their Savior forever. Received, not achieved. Much of what we enjoy in life we count as an achievement. We study and work hard to achieve a good job, success in a career, or a certain standard of life. The Holy Spirit's work of restoration in our lives is the opposite. To be a new creation and to be part of God's community is never something we achieve by our own reason, strength, or skill. Instead, we receive both as a free gift in spite of our failures. In fact, even the ability to trust the promises of God is a gift worked in us by the Holy Spirit. As we hear the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the Spirit gives the gift of faith. And while we certainly strive daily to keep God's commandments, we can only truly love his laws and keep his ways through the strength we receive from the Holy Spirit. Unlike our experience in other arenas of life, the Holy Spirit's work of restoring us is a gift from beginning to end. Purpose Restored 
earlier in this chapter, we noted that God created us to be in his presence, enjoy fellowship with him, and rule over his creation. Through the Holy Spirit, God is at work in us, restoring us to these high purposes once again. Even now, in this age, the Holy Spirit connects us to the presence of Jesus Christ as we long for the day when God's glory will fill every corner of his creation. Even now, we enjoy fellowship with God through his Spirit as we long to enjoy fellowship with him face to face. And even now, God's work is being done in us making us more and more like Jesus as we await the day when he will raise us with him in power forever. Repentance and faith, the heart of the Apostles' Creed. So far, the content of this chapter has been a brief overview of who the triune God is, as well as his work of creation, redemption, and restoration. In other words, this chapter forms the center of Christian doctrine or teaching. While correct teaching about God's person and work is essential, it does not in itself reconcile us to God or save us from our sins. Rather, the core essentials of Christian doctrine outlined in the Apostles' Creed invite a heart response to repent and believe the good news. See Mark 1.15. Heart response number one, repentance. When the reality of our Creator's power, justice, and holiness collides with our brokenness, self-centeredness, and rebellion, we experience repentance. We see clearly the difference between who God is and who we are, what He expects from us, and how short we fall. The arguing, the excuses, and the self-justification are over. We are undone, found out, and exposed. We change our minds. We admit that we are wrong. With crushed hearts in need of consolation, we are in desperate need of good news. No one can manufacture this kind of heart response to God's holiness. Repentance is something that only God can work in us by the Holy Spirit. Apart from the Holy Spirit's work of conviction, we can never admit the worst about ourselves. Without his intervention, we'd continue to live in the delusion that God will excuse our sins or that we can buy him off with our good works. True repentance means we change our minds, admit that we're wrong, and seek his forgiveness, grace, and the help that only God provides. Heart response number two, faith. God only declares us guilty so he can acquit us. He only breaks our hearts so he can heal them. At rock bottom, God speaks words that lift us up. His word tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16 And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 The good news of God's redemption in Jesus Christ creates faith in our hearts, a humble trust in his promises. This response of faith is not something we muster up through our own strength. It's a gift. Just like a baby naturally learns to trust her mother because she consistently experiences her mother's love, our hearts begin to trust God's love for us in the cross and empty tomb of his son. 
through the gift of faith in our hearts, we are at peace with our Creator and saved from the consequences of our sins. As the Apostle Paul declares, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10.9 When the good news of God's saving love grabs our hearts, we begin to see everything else in a new light. God is no longer a distant deity, an angry judge, or the projections of our priorities. He is our loving Father. His creation is no longer an object of our worship. It's rather the free gift of a generous God that we receive daily in humility and thanksgiving. Our neighbor is no longer an object to manipulate for our own ends. Every human being now becomes an object of our love as we learn to love like the one who loved us first. Faith in action. Habits formed by a faithful God. The Apostles' Creed briefly tells us the story of God's love. In love, he created. In love, he redeemed us. In love, he is restoring us. In other words, unlike the Ten Commandments, the Creed is all about what God has done and continues to do rather than what we should do. However, when the story of God's love lives in our hearts, it will shape our habits. The biblical story is not a spectator story. It's a story that draws us in and gives us a role as the story continues to unfold. We already touched on the habits of worship, growth, and service in the first chapter. These are the rhythms of life we live in response to God's story. Now that we've learned more about this story and the creed, let's review and go deeper. These three Christian habits are the arenas in which the Holy Spirit is at work restoring us to the image of Jesus Christ and restoring this world to his good purposes. Worship. Many people think that going to church is something we do. This is true to some degree. We get up, drive to church, enter the door, sit down, and participate. Whether we know it or not, something much more profound takes place when we worship. In worship, God is working on us and in us serving us and shaping us for his purposes. When we hear God's word read or preached, the Holy Spirit is at work, bringing us to repentance and giving us the gift of faith in Jesus. When we receive the sacraments, we'll discuss these more in chapter 5, God is at work, sealing and securing our trust in him. We respond with service to God in return. His work in us creates a response of praise, prayer, and thanksgiving. We are renewed and ready to return to serving others in our various callings. Worship is foundational to the Christian life. And yet, for a variety of reasons, participation in worship has declined among those who claim to be Christians. Many question whether church is really needful or may schedule it as just one of many competing extracurricular activities on the calendar. However, when our hearts belong to Jesus and we embrace our role as characters in God's story, we can't help but worship regularly with, with other Christians. 
As new creations in Christ, fellowship in God's community is the cornerstone of our lives. Grow. The Holy Spirit creates in us the fruits of new creation. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See Galatians 5, 22-23. But none of these fruits grow in us naturally. They are the harvest of God's word planted in our hearts and minds. Scripture tells us that we need to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Romans 12, 2. This transformation and renewal takes place as we come into continual contact with the Word of God. The same Word of God that gave us new birth, see James 1.18 and 1 Peter 1.23, is now our daily bread, see Matthew 4.4, and it is the source of our growth, 1 Peter 2.2. Like rain and sunlight cause plants to take root and bear fruit, God's Word is the means by which the Holy Spirit grows our faith and motivates us to keep God's commandments. Since God's Word is the source of our growth, it's important for Christians to read, study, and meditate on the Scriptures. We do this with other Christians, perhaps in a Bible study or a small group. We also read the Bible daily on our own. As we read and think about God's Word, we grow stronger in our sense of His love for us and learn to love what he loves. Serve. The Apostle John tells us we love because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19 When we come to know the love of God in Jesus Christ, we begin to serve others. We may imagine serving others as working in a soup kitchen or going on a short-term medical mission trip. These are fine examples of serving. However, more often than not, our service to others is located in the ordinary trenches of daily life. God uses us to serve his creation as we serve in roles like husband, wife, father, mother, son, daughter, neighbor, citizen, employee, or employer. These callings, often called vocations, reflect humanity's call to rule over God's creation. You don't have to be a Christian to serve in one of these roles, But being a Christian will shape the way you serve in them. Rather than using our callings to secure status or wealth or well-being, we embrace our callings for the sake of others. We use our power, influence, and talents to love others as God first loved us. In the midst of our callings, we also seek to share the good news of God's saving love. In both word and deed, We show the world who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. By doing so, we invite others to take up their role in God's story alongside us. Connecting Head, Heart, and Habits The Creed tells the story of God's love for us in creation, redemption, and restoration. In love, he has called you to be a part of this story. As you reflect on what you've learned, take some time to answer the following questions. Head. What are some unbiblical views of God held by our culture? What are some unbiblical views of Jesus held by our culture? Describe how the view of God given in the Apostles' Creed is different from our culture's view of God.
Describe how the view of Jesus given in the Apostles' Creed is different from our culture's view of Jesus. If a friend asked you, can you tell me about Jesus Christ, how would you respond? What difference does it make whether or not Jesus was truly raised from the dead? Heart. The redemption of Jesus can be summarized as God's presence, pardon, and power. Review the description of each in this chapter. Reflecting on each, share which of these you find the most comforting right now and why. Have you repented of your sins? Have you trusted in Christ alone for God's forgiveness and the gift of life everlasting? Thank you.